HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Our restaurant delivery system is broken. Can we all just agree on this? Restaurants are getting hammered with percentage of sales fees, delivery drivers are hurting for fair pay, stability, and safety, and customers have been trained to expect faster delivery times and wider accessibility. So we are excited to welcome back to the show. This is our first repeat guest, so we are very excited. It's the first time ever in opening soon. It's long history of three years. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so Josh Morgan is here with us today. He's the operating partner of Melt Shop and the CEO co-founder of Sesame, which is a new delivery platform for restaurants by restaurateurs. They are fighting back against the established ag- aggregators, and Sesame actually just launched its beta in New York City this past week. So thank you for joining Congrats us. Welcome back. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. And I am deeply honored and humbled to be a repeat <laughs> guest. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I know. I was just saying that, you know, you just need to keep on opening stuff so we and having things to talk on opening soon about, but I love it. We love serial entrepreneurs on uh, on the show and just in general. Um, but I think it's really interesting. You know, you obviously, we talked about this a little bit before, but you reached out at a very interesting time because there's obviously been a lot of talk about fixing the delivery system, the drivers, yep. the platforms, all the things. So tell we us. We were literally like talking about yeah. that morning yeah. and yeah. how messed up it was and, and and you emailed or called or whatever. In the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect timing. Really the universe is, uh, yeah, is telling us something that we all needed to reconvene and, and really talk this out because it's a, it's a huge problem. And we're excited about, you know, trying to potentially solve it. So tell us, tell us a little bit about Sesame and what makes it different and what you guys are, are trying to solve and accomplish. Yeah, of course. So first and foremost, you know, I'm a career restaurateur, you know, and we talked about this on our first podcast, but I've dedicated you know, most of my career um, to the hospitality and restaurant business, um, driven really by a passion for creating experiences for our guests and, you know, building brands along the way. And, and I've loved it. And I've had the good fortune of working for incredible companies um, like Orify Brands, um, you know, Houston's, uh, you know, the Made Nice team. And, you know, I think first, 
the, the first thing we really want to do is look at this problem from the lens of people who actually live it and breathe it every day. And, you know, this industry has been, you know, pervaded by Silicon Valley and big tech. Not that that in and of itself is bad, but, you know, sometimes solving problems unique to a specific industry requires people that understand the nuances of running businesses within that industry. So first and foremost, that's why we created or why we thought we would be the best people to kind of solve some of these problems because we we love this business and we're passionate about it and, and we want to not only solve problems but we want to create solutions that 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 provide for the betterment of the entire collective industry and that's founders owners operators team members delivery drivers like everybody that impacts this valuable system you know we want to solve problems for and we just again felt that the validation of, of being restaurant people would would um, put us in a better place and, um, you know, when COVID hit, um, you know, we had at Orify, we have about 120 restaurants across six different brands. So, you know, when COVID hit, we were just picking up the pieces and trying to, you know, plot our path forward, which was very difficult, not only for the restaurant industry, but clearly everyone globally. But, but what it made me do is it forced me to kind of think about some of the fundamental problems that exist in our industry. And I very quickly landed on, on off-premise, which had seen a large, you know, proliferation in the years leading up to the COVID. But but when COVID hit, it just kind of was this realization or an epiphany that this is so bad and this is so not sustainable because when off-premise sales go from, you know, maybe 10% or below pre-COVID <laughs> to, you know, operating restaurants where it's like 60%, 70% of your sales in this cataclysmic, you know, environment, which certainly isn't normal, but but it kind of smacks you in the face and it's like, wait a minute. This can't if this can't work at like 10, 15 percent, how the heck is it going to work at 60 percent of sales? So it was so just really restaurants were on on one of the other platforms at the time. Yeah. So most of our restaurants are fast casual in nature, with the exception of, of one brand, Little B Table. But and so we've been kind of battling the, you know, the off premise game for, for several years. So most of our our properties were you know, kind of casting this wide net. I use that term a lot because it really shows how the industry has evolved. It, there used to be this notion that, you know, you would maybe be on one platform and that's it. And then you would just drive all the other traffic or as much traffic as you could through your proprietary channel, which is, you know, our owned uh, intellectual property like Melshop.com, LittleBeat.com, FiveGuys.com. Um, and then over the years in, in the you know, in the chase for incremental sales, restaurants started to just turn on all channels, you know, everything that you could um, that was feasible just to try to compete and to get more sales and hopefully get incremental profit. Um, and then over the years, we just realized, and again, because COVID, you know, hit us in the face, we realized that just by turning on incremental sales doesn't mean that you're always getting incremental profit. And this is kind of one of the big you know, the bigger topics um, that I, I think of as being duped. You know, I think the industry was kind of duped by big tech um, in that they promised this idea of incremental sales. And the, the, the natural belief was that those incremental sales would flow down to your bottom line. And what we realized, especially when you add in layers of, you know, cannibalization, you know, these aggregators stealing our own uh, in-house guests that, the contribution margin wasn't there. So, you know, when you when you really distill down and you look at the numbers, it just doesn't make sense, even at lower sales volumes, um, you know, that, that, that we 
we're turning on all of these channels and yet we're not really seeing return on those on the sales dollars. So those are just all additional reasons why the system is so so broken. I agree. I, I think that, you know, it's interesting you say that the restaurants are, were duped. I think the customers in a lot of ways too are duped and, and brainwashed. And that this, this idea that I can, I should, I can and should order food from a hundred miles away, expect it in 20 <laughs> minutes and expect to pay yep. $8 for it. And for all of that to just sort of work out. Um, exactly. It's just, just not the way that, you know, we grew up eating or ordering delivery food. And it's, it's certainly doesn't make any sense to me sustainably. So it's, it's really interesting to hear that you're, that you've worked on something new. Did you guys um, have other thoughts before, you know, Sesame came about? Did you think about taking it in house for each of your concepts? Is that possible to go back to a phone call system? Like, <laughs> did you try that? Yeah. I mean, look, we, for years, we've been kind of contemplating internally how we can get better at driving traffic through our channels and the ones that we control, which are inherently more profitable. Um, but it's just such a, it's such a challenge. And the main reason is, is because most restaurateurs um, and, and Sesame really targets, you know, we're, we're hoping to help all restaurants in all neighborhoods, but you know, a real sweet spot are the independents, the mom and pops, you know, the local neighborhood establishments. And and the challenge for them is that restaurateurs are really, really great at a lot of things, culinary innovation and hospitality, taking care of their guests, making connections with the community. But when it comes to becoming a digital entrepreneur, it's just very, very difficult. It's, it's become so sophisticated and so challenging. Um, and it's just, it's, it's tough for the, for the independents. So so we at Orify Brands always thought, like, how do we get better at becoming digital entrepreneurs? And, you know, we spent uh, a lot of time and money and resources building out our own proprietary channels that are powered by various types of tech stacks. But even doing that, it's it's difficult. It's challenging. It's expensive. Um, it's very fragmented. And what what we found in kind of doing this deep dive into the business model of Sesame is that. You know, consumers now are addicted to the Amazon, you know, search and discovery, high digital touch point, um, a really, really great consumer experience with lots of convenience. And what the industry did in response to the proliferation of the aggregators was they went headfirst into this proprietary channel. We're going to hope that all of our fans and all of our consumers come to MelShop.com and download the MelShop app. Then go to Little Beat and download the Little Beat app. And after years and years of this, what we found in talking to consumers is that there's there's destination fatigue. You know, there's app fatigue. Consumers, again, want convenience all in one place. And there wasn't a lot of people out there competing in that kind of traditional marketplace search and discovery. And, you know, Sesame, that's, that's one of the reasons why Sesame, where we decided to build Sesame as a marketplace that offered some of those value propositions I just alluded to, to compete with the you know, DoorDash and Grubs and Uber Eats of the world. And it's because we knew and we saw that there was this pinch point from consumers um, that, you know, it's just too fragmented. It's, it's too difficult putting in your credit card into 10 different places. And, and, you know, really like how many friends do you, do we know that, you know, prefer to go to, you know, six different places on their list of, you know, favorite restaurants rather than go to ideally one place and have it all, all in, um, you know, get it done in one shot. So, so those are some of the things that we kind of thought about when we were ideating uh, what Sesame could look like and, and how it could be structured. But to your question earlier, Alex, you know, we, we've been trying for years and, you know, Sesame in and of itself isn't a novel idea in the sense that 
you know, disrupting aggregators um, in favor of the merchants themselves. I mean, you can look into any industry, whether it be hotel and travel and airline, you know, this, it, this, this, um, this fight has been played over many times, just not necessarily in this space. But, you know, one, one good way to, to think about it or look at it, and maybe your listeners will, will appreciate this, is this was done recently with, um, with the reservation industry in the way that Resi had kind of combated against the, um, you know, the, the behemoth of open table and really did so by, you know, deciding that number one, they wanted to help the merchants, you know, co- you know, collect more money and make more money off of, um, these new users. And, you know, they did it by essentially saying that, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to pay commissions. Like you don't need to pay an infinite amount of money you know, the more reservations you get and they kind of transition to the SaaS model. And, and it, and it worked really, really well. Resi was acquired by Amex a couple of years ago and, and they did a lot of great things on both the merchant side as well as the consumer side. And um, we're just trying to take some of those learnings and best practices. And again, a mission of giving back to the actual restaurant tours and creating a similar business model and disrupt in a very similar way. So, and tell our listeners, because I, I don't think we actually described the business model for Sesame. So, what makes it different to the restaurateurs' bottom lines? Um, what, how, how are you changing that model? So, so fundamentally, what we're doing is we're taking the current playbook and the business model that the aggregators use, which are rooted in two primary things: commission-based monetization. So, the more the more um, orders or sales restaurants receive off of these platforms, the more dollars they pay. And it's infinite. You know, we know restaurants that are do tremendous volume on places like Caviar or Uber Eats, and they might pay, you know, 10000 15 We know some that are even paying t- over $20,000 a month um, oh. in the form of commissions. <laughs> and on Sesame... And on Sesame, you pay $125, right? So, so that's the difference between a commission-based or a transaction-based monetization and a SaaS model, which is fixed and capped. So that's number one. So when you compare those two numbers, it's kind of crazy to think about, but you know, twenty thousand versus one hundred and twenty-five dollars. That delta is almost all profit. You know, they go straight to the bottom line. So it's hugely, hugely impactful to a restaurant's profitability. Um, so that's number one. Another thing that is fundamental is this notion of data, and in the current model that the aggregators use, in fact. DoorDash and Grub and Uber are suing New York City and San Francisco right now specifically over this data issue is that we believe in an open data model where the restaurants should be able to know their customers, cater to their customers, and that they should have access to the information when a consumer places an order from their favorite restaurants. The current models restrict that and they do not allow restaurants to get access to that data. So that's another fundamental difference of of how Sesame is trying to compete Interesting. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have realized that necessarily. So the, so at the restaurant, you don't get any information on the customer. No, you might get name, but you don't get you know the the most important thing is are things email. like email and yeah. or or phone numbers for SMS. So not all of that is in, is encrypted and and restricted. So so what what happens is, and this is why it's such a predatory type of industry, because DoorDash and and some of these guys have gotten so good at retargeting consumers that they can take, you know, a Melt Shop customer that that either comes to Melt Shop or uses the Melt Shop proprietary channel, they can retarget them, you know, get them to use DoorDash or Uber 
get their information and, and do a much better job at retargeting that customer than MailShop can. And, and it's a challenge, like I said, because restaurateurs typically aren't these digital entrepreneurs who are savvy at this. So, so owning that data and, and, and utilizing it um, effectively is, is an important thing. So, so when a customer comes to Sesame and, and like orders, they opt in for the restaurant basically to also receive their data. And then the restaurant automatically gets access to the phone number, the email and whatever. So they can like do their own marketing. Exactly. And, you know, look, there's a, there's a wide spectrum of sophistication uh, you know, across restaurants and what they do with data. Um, some of the restaurants like ours are pretty active in trying to develop marketing plans and, you know, retention plans to, to get our fan base, you know, to continue to use our product. Um, you know, others aren't and don't necessarily have the, the means and the tools to do so. But either way, we're there to support them and give them the access to that data. And, you know, we, we, we support whatever they choose to do with it, whether it's retarget them and, and drive them to their own channel or whether it's to, to continue to support Sesame because the, you know, the contribution margin for the restaurant is very compelling when orders come off of Sesame due to that low SaaS uh, cost. So, and then tell us a little bit about how like the fulfillment process works. So you guys are a, a better, more restaurant friendly sort of platform or marketplace um, for the restaurants, but tell me about how you're, you're fulfilling the orders. Yeah, of course. See, look, fulfillment is a huge component of the equation of off-premise, right? And, you know, when we started to think about Sesame and what it might look like, there's a couple things that we, we kind of stated, you know, out of the gate. One was that, number one, we didn't want to reinvent the logistics wheel, right? I mean, it, this has been done for many, many years all across the world, and it's very difficult to run efficiently and effectively. So we knew that Sesame didn't want to choose to kind of build one from, from the ground up. The, the other thing that we stated from the, from the get-go was that we wanted to not necessarily look at just the most efficient or, you know, um, most... Uh, uh, you know, cost-effective way to execute delivery, but we wanted to look at delivery from the eyes of the consumer. How do we make sure that the consumer can have the highest likelihood of an of a high-quality executed experience when ordering from their favorite restaurants? And in order, when you set yourself up looking to solve problems in that vein, what's most important is working with a fulfillment company that is has a long history of of consistency scalability, and does things the right way, meaning they're not only efficient, but they're efficient because they do the right things, like take care of their fleet. They make sure that they're, you know, they're incentivizing their fleet in the, in, in the appropriate ways. And, um, you know, all of these factors kind of drove us to develop a strategic partnership with a company called Relay, which is based here in New York City. And we know Relay because Relay has been powering our fulfillment um, and a lot of our brands at Orify for many, many years. And again, they have a proven track record where I'm very close with the founder, Alex, who's a great guy. And, um, and we decided to, to tackle logistics, you know, that way by developing this partnership with Relay. So a restaurant that comes on to Sesame really has two options. One is they can self-deliver, which is great. There's a lot of brands that still try to do that themselves. Um, or they can, or they can work with Relay. And that's kind of how the system is set up now. We may extend that as we you know, scale into other markets and there are other fulfillment only 
companies that we could work with, but for now it's, it's one of uh, those two options. And how does, how, so, and who pays Relay? Does Relay get a percentage of sales or is that a flat monthly? Like how does that, or is it like a five flat, flat fee per order? How does that work? Yeah. So the economics on the delivery typically work like this. First of all, most of the restaurants in New York already work with Relay, especially the restaurants that are on Sesame. So they have existing accounts. And the, and, and the reason that is, is because Relay's bread and butter has been delivering orders on behalf of those proprietary channels that I mentioned. So when Melchop got an order through its own channel, Relay's the go-to fulfillment uh, provider, right? So, so they're, they're all across the, the city. Pre-COVID, they had, I think, like 7,000 couriers. So, so a lot of people know Relay. And what happens is Relay will bill the restaurant directly um, for, let's say, like a $30 check. The cost typically is about $5. Um, there's a bit of a range, but, but let's just, you know, um, for purposes of explaining the economics, it's about $5. So the restaurant pays that. And this is the, you know, this is the big black hole of misinformation and lack of education where most consumers don't really understand how things work and, you know, what fees go where and who gets paid this. So one of the things that Sesame we're also trying to tackle is just complete honesty and transparency about what's happening behind the scenes and what everything means. Um, what most restaurants do is they have a choice, right? They can pass along a delivery fee. So when all of us, we've all had experience with this, typically when you place an order, you'll see a bunch of line items, one of which is a delivery fee. Um, that delivery fee, sometimes it's $199, $299, is set by the restaurant. And that's a way that they subsidize the cost of that $5 um, logistics cost to relay, right? So in essence, the restaurant is basically saying, hey, the consumer will pay a portion of it and then we'll pay the rest. And that's typically how the economics work for the cost of fulfillment of that delivery. If that, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, so that it does make sense. So you're so be, most people on Sesame are are doing like a small delivery fee surcharge, and that is you know obviously subsidizing the cost for Relay, who's just like this third party fulfillment service, basically that is just the delivery fleet. That's exactly right, and you know the industry has evolved over the years. I mean, I remember in the early days of offering delivery. Um, you know, we've been doing it for for so long. In the beginning, you know, you couldn't really charge a delivery fee because consumers just simply weren't willing to pay one. Um, and then over the years, as you know, it's, it's become more popular, off-premise sales have consistently grown. You know, I think consumers have been a little bit more willing to pay some of that cost of delivery. Um, mainly, it's, you know, maybe it's their favorite restaurant that, you know, they, they're, they love the brand. And, you know, you know how it is when you want your favorite sandwich or your favorite salad. That's all you really want. Um, and I think restaurants have, have been able to, um, you know, accumulate kind of a loyal fan base that are willing to, to pay that cost. And the reality is, and this, this goes to the education, right? Like nothing is for free, right? Like you can't deliver things from, from A to B, whether it's food or whether it's, you know, some sort of physical product, like a manufactured product, it costs money. Someone is paying that. And oh, this, we know. <laughs> you know, and like this, is, yeah. and, and this gets to what we were talking about earlier, right? Like there's this, this, this like the kind of the wool over the eyes of the consumer and leading them to believe that you can get anything you want for no cost at all. Well, the reality is, is whenever you see zero dollars on, let's say, Grub or Uber or Dash Pass or whatever these programs are, 
it doesn't mean there's no cost. It just means that most likely that platform is willing to eat that cost because their losses, and we're talking about crazy losses, are being subsidized by Wall Street um, or the investment community. Um, and but it's not real, you know. I mean, I think this is what this is Amazon. This is how Amazon ruined consumers, basically, is because Amazon tricked everybody to thinking they got free delivery when, in fact, they were like losing billions of dollars. And again, like as you said, it got passed along to the investors and then to the public who owns their stock. But and it's the same thing that's happening with delivery services. So it's it's unfortunate. I mean, we know too from our business, and it's like if people want your products, they'll pay the delivery charge because somebody has to pay it, or you. You know, it's, we can't, small businesses can't just afford to lose money because people don't want to pay a delivery fee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and yeah. I, yeah, totally. And it's, it's an unrealistic expectation that's been set. Yeah. And I think in order to create sustainable business models, we have to do a little bit of education and we have to, uh, you know, teach consumers a little bit more about what's really happening. But, but at the same time, I'll walk you through some numbers to, to kind of put this into perspective, but consumers are still paying more than they should. Not even you know, irrespective of this delivery fee that we're talking about, and the the reason for that is is because these companies are losing a tremendous amount of money, and someone's got to pay. It's either the restaurant or the consumer in the current model, right? And let me just give you an example: if if you're a consumer and you're going to place a hundred dollar order on, let's say, sesame versus caviar, so caviar typically, as of today, charges fifteen percent service fee. Right, so on a hundred dollar order, that's fifteen dollars. On Sesame, we charge a flat fixed rate three dollars. Right, so that's a net savings to the consumer of twelve dollars. That's just on the service fee. Service fee, just so everyone knows, that's the line item that you see on any you know, delivery app that typically goes to the platform itself. Just like the Sesame fee actually goes to Sesame, and we make that very very clear. Right. The other thing at at play, which is it, it has really manifested itself um, recently is that restaurants, because they're so used to being charged these high commissions over years and years, they started to increase their menu prices and they add premiums. So the menu prices on caviar might be 15% higher, sometimes 20% higher than they would be if you ordered it directly from the restaurant. So on that same $100 order, there's an additional $15 in cost that the consumer is paying in higher menu prices. Right. So when you add those things together, the consumer can save, in theory, up to $27 simply by ordering on Sesame, right? So that's a pretty substantial, if you think of it as a percent, you know, 27% in just fees that they don't have to pay. And the reason why I tie that back to the delivery is that if a consumer can save $27 and know that, number one, they're helping their favorite restaurant, they're, they're, they're partaking and participating in a system that offers more sustainability um, and fairness, they just save money. They might be more apt or willing to happily pay that two ninety nine delivery fee because they know that there is a real cost of delivery. So we're we're really kind of excited to offer not only the benefits to the restaurant but benefits to the consumers in the form of of lower fees. And speaking of the consumer, so you know, obviously you've already seen the, the program is in beta and you're you're live, um, and you've signed up restaurants, how are you acquiring customers? Because again, that's, you know, a problem with big tech is they'll spend customer acquisition at all costs, even if it's not profitable. Yeah. I mean, look, that's the big, uh, that's the big <laughs> question. And it's not, it's not always easy in, in uh, the current environment where everybody is out there just trying to get the same customers. But, 
the way we're, we're thinking about it is in a bunch of different ways, but first and foremost, it's creating alignment with the restaurants, you know, and, and we do this, which is very innovative and unique in the marketplace space simply by not charging those commissions. Right. So, so for every order that comes off of Sesame, the, the contribution profit to that restaurant is as good in some cases better than it would be on their own proprietary channel. So, and that's because we do not charge commission. So when you start with that, we now have alignment with the restaurants. Like we're sitting, I like to use this analogy, you know, we're sitting on the same table, same side of the table as the restaurant tour, whereas the other aggregators are on the opposite side. And because of that, we can do a lot of different things. One of which is we can work together to acquire customers, right? So one thing restaurants have is they typically have a database of, of, of loyal um, consumers that have a lot of brand affinity for that brand. And, you know, like I said, I mentioned this kind of like spectrum of restaurants. You know, some restaurants are very sophisticated when it comes to, you know, marketing. Others aren't, you know, they don't have sophisticated tech stacks and ordering solutions. So, so with a lot of these restaurants, we can work together to, you know, promote Sesame, let their their consumers and user base know that, that this restaurant is available on Sesame. And if you imagine that at scale, you know, across New York Metro or even across the country, that has a huge impact on consumer uh, acquisition or the customer acquisition costs themselves. Um, and it all goes back to creating that alignment and, you know, mutual benefit and really kind of creating a, a system that benefits the restaurant as its, you know, primary mission. The second thing that we're doing, which we haven't really talked on, but it's so fundamental to, to Sesame, I want to make sure we don't, you know, we, we don't skip it, is that we really try to create a, mission, a true mission-driven, you know, company in that we're not only trying to help the restaurant industry, but we're also trying to give back to the, to the greater community writ large through charitable donations. And an example of this is Sesame has partnered with City Harvest so that every single order placed on Sesame feeds a hungry New Yorker in need. And, you know, we believe that it's like incumbent and it's our duty to not only, you know, again, try to try to solve some problems for our industry, but in doing so, give back. And and instead of doing the traditional helicopter money approach, you know, it's funny, before COVID, I used to get emails from Grub and Uber, you know, $5 off, $10 off. Post-COVID, in this race to take market share, I'll regularly get emails, $100 off. I just what? Thought, really? Yeah, That's I mean it's, it's so common, and and really it's because all they care about is getting market share, you know, like profitability, sustainability, fairness, be damned, right? It's like we yeah, need more, yeah. more market share, and it's kind of gross. I saw, I'm sure you're aware of the grocery wars that are happening here in New York. There's six, seven different companies competing for, you know, fulfillment of you know groceries, you know, like GoPuff and Joker and Gorillas. Anyways, I got an email. Five hundred dollar credit for groceries. Five hundred dollars. You know, so yeah. I mean, it's just it's not sustain. And again, Alex, like you know, to your point, like this is not this is funny money. This is not sustainable, right? But but to put it to put it back into perspective, we at Sesame have basically said we are not playing that game. Number one, we'll, we'll lose that game because they have deeper pockets than we do. But rather than try to just you know bribe people with free shit and free sandwiches, we kind of or thinking about it in a way like, look, if you're going to use a delivery app, use the one that feeds the hungry New Yorker and then slowly educate that same consumer on why it's better for the restaurants and what it means to the sustain long-term sustainability of, you know, the industry and, and so on and so forth. So we're really just leading with, with a mission 
much more than free stuff. And, and I've always been a believer, this goes back to our restaurant brand, you never get brand affinity with giving stuff for free. You know, you get brand affinity by providing true value, developing a relationship with your consumer and making sure that you're listening to them and always delivering on that value. And that's what creates brand loyalty and affinity. And that's what we're trying to do with Sesame. And so those are some of the ways that we're kind of tackling customer acquisition and and trying to be innovative. And look, uh, there's no illusions of grandeur here. We're, we're picking a fight with some behemoths. This is true, David and Goliath. But we just can't help but be encouraged by you know, the hundred thousands of restaurateurs that we've spoken to over the, over the last year and to hear how frustrated and how much contentiousness there is against these aggregators. And, you know, restaurants call, uh, you know, they, they refer to Grubhub as the mafia, you know? And then when we talk to consumers and when we hear from them that there's zero brand loyalty or affinity to any of these platforms, they're, 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 they're perceived as commoditized transactional experiences. We just think there's such a large white space to provide that true value in the form of mission, community, and sustainability. I mean, I think I'm the opposite of what you're talking about before. It's like, I don't go to the, I go to the restaurant's websites directly now, just because I'm so over caviar and Grubhub and all of those things. Which is amazing. I've gone old school. I'm calling people again. I'm like, you know. But it's not, it's not easy. It's not easy. Like you said, it's because it's been, you know, prolific for so long that, People sometimes just don't even have telephones. Like it, they don't have a, a website that's set up to take orders. They 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 erased it as something that they need to have or should have because yep. they've been told that they that they can't or that, that it doesn't make sense financially or whatever it is. But um, I think it's really yeah. really cool what you're doing. You think it? You think your business will also force the current big guys to change, or you think they're going to go down? fighting until the end because they just don't have the money to dig back out of the hole. Well, I mean, I think when we make a big splash, which which we're planning to, you know, I think I think they're going to have to adapt. But the challenge with their business model is they can't really change the economics of the model, right? They Either the restaurant has to pay or the consumer has to pay. And to give you an example of this and, and how I see this continuing for, for the coming months or years, you know, a lot of municipalities and cities have been passing either temporary or permanent caps on commissions. And the reason why they're doing this is because, yeah, look, it's a sign. When the government has to get involved to regulate pricing, usually (laughs) something is wrong, right? Right. Right? So when COVID hit, New York and and San Francisco passed uh, temporary caps on commissions. So it meant that the aggregators could not monetize as much as they could on the backs of restaurants. What did they do? They responded by by adding in the consumer-facing fees. And they did this in various cities across the country as kind of like a test. You know, in Chicago, if you ordered off of DoorDash, there would be a Chicago surcharge fee of just like a random fee, like $2, $3, right? Because again, if they can't collect it from the restaurant, they got to get it from the customer. And there was huge backlash from consumers. Um, in fact, I, I believe, I don't know, I, I, I'm pretty confident, but I believe that Chicago filed like some sort of injunction or lawsuit against DoorDash for, for implying that it was a Chicago-based fee. But anyways, it didn't work out well. So so to answer your question, Alex, I don't think they have many options in changing their economics. Um, the other thing that I think they will do is, and we know they're actually already doing this, um, and this is one of the reasons why I believe that you know the, the, the restaurant industry in general is facing an existential threat is that they're losing so much money 
that one of the other ways that they can make more money and create profitability, at least they think, is to own the entire supply chain. And by that, I mean, not only will they generate the order, deliver the order, but they're actually going to make the product as well. And all so three of these companies kitchens, are yeah. opening up ghost ghost facilities, you know, ghost kitchens or dark kitchens, which has um, been very popular over the last couple of years. They're creating their own virtual concepts, and they're literally supplanting the very industry and the operators that they're claiming to support and help, which is a scary proposition, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I know there's been like stories of people going in and like searching for a specific restaurant and the restaurant actually never got the order. It was like fulfilled by like some other ghost kitchen situation. I don't know. It's right. yeah. That's why I go direct to the restaurant. It's real, so. but, then they, yeah. but then they'll also pose it to the business as some sort of, you know, or marketing for you, and blah, blah, do all yeah. this for you and all you have to do is supply the recipe or whatever. <laughs> and then, and then boom, yeah. next thing, you know, all your customers are gone. Exactly. It's, it's a very, you know, kind of scary, um, you know, evolution of what's happening in this space. And, you know, again, I think, and this was part of the fuel that drove me personally when I was, you know, debating, like, should, should we tackle this or not, you know, back when COVID started. And I just came to the conclusion that, you know, someone needs to fix this or someone needs to attempt to try to solve the problem. And if we don't solve it, you know, they're just going to continue to monopolize this business until literally it's beaten to a pulp and unrecognizable, you know, and, and the unfortunate reality of how this model is set up is that, again, the independence, the small enterprise pay the burden to a much higher degree than the enterprise big companies, you know, like Starbucks and McDonald's and Chick-fil-A, like they get sweetheart deals with these aggregators where, you know, the guy on the street who just opened up his first concept and is a killer you know, culinary genius. He's the one that pays the the, the biggest price. So, biggest, yeah. So tell us, um, I know you're in beta now, and I, I saw on your site that you are currently from like Soho to 34th Street or something to, to that range. How do you? Yep. When are you out of beta? What do you need to learn before you get to the next step? And how? You know, where do you expect to be, and how long do you expect to be there to get more people signed up and, and on board? Yeah, look, it's a it's a great question. You know, we it's hard to say when we'll be out of beta. Um, you know, this we did build a pro- fully proprietary product, meaning the front end app, the marketplace, the back end logic, the whole e commerce platform is proprietary. So we spent a great deal of time, you know, doing quality control and testing. So part of beta and and you know, which is kind of a prototype, is you know, fine tuning that. And like any digital tech product, it, it requires fine tuning and, and validation. So that's part of the reason why we're in in a beta and why we are restricting the, the geography. Um, you know, the good news is that we have unbelievable engineers and we hired a, a an un, unreal digital design firm called Frog Design to help us build the front end uh, web app. And, you know, we're unbelievably happy with, with how it turned out. Um, so that's one of the things that we're focused on. The other thing is the supply, you know, it's in order to build a marketplace, which makes it very daunting, you know, you have to build the supply and the demand at basically the same time, you know, which is, is tough. So, so by, by kind of creating a geographic boundary for the first, you know, several weeks, um, it allows us to really control and match the, both the supply with the demand. And, you know, we've got hundreds of restaurants that have told us that they want to be part of Sesame, um, which again, like gives us the fuel to kind of keep 
you know, driving forward in this, in this Herculean task. Um, but, you know, we got to get them onboarded and we've got to get the menus and the data and the pictures and everything into Sesame, which, you know, can be somewhat complicated. We've, we've devised a, a really great system for onboarding, um, which we're really happy with, but it's just a process. And, you know, we envision um, that in the, you know, going into the end of the year, you know, we hope to be, at, you know, you know, a couple hundred um, lo- locations and we'll slowly expand those geographic boundaries and move into new neighborhoods. Um, you know, we've got a great waiting list. Like we've been talking to restaurants in Brooklyn and uptown and Harlem, uh, financial district. So we've got a great pipeline when we're ready. And, um, yeah, we're, we're really enthusiastic about the supply side. And we think, you know, getting you know, consumers aware of Sesame and kind of the compelling value propositions that we think we have to offer. We think that demand will, will match that supply. Are you seeing people who come on the platform terminate their relationships with like the other with the other aggregators? Is that is that the hope? Are you seeing it like as a slow migration? So um, the short answer is no, because like I mentioned earlier, you know everybody is kind of out there, kind of casting this wide net and getting yeah. as much incremental sales as possible, right? So that's just that's the mo right now. So most restaurants, by the way, just to be clear. You, you can be on Sesame and be on all the platforms you want or none of the platforms you want. There's no, there's no requirement for exclusivity whatsoever. What I do envision, and this is already happening, like every restaurant we speak to literally hates the current system and wants nothing that <laughs> would like nothing more than to turn off all these other channels. But the problem is, is, and this is what I talked about earlier, is until there's an alternative marketplace solution that can generate the demand, and or until the restaurant is maybe a little bit more confident in their ability to generate their own demand through their proprietary channel, it's just very difficult to, to, to pull the cord, right? So, so I do envision a near-term future where we can prove that not only can we, can, can we create more sustainability for the restaurants, but that we can bring that demand that the aggregators currently offer. And I think there will be a, a, shift, you know, a seismic shift when restaurants start to reconsider, you know, their approach to off-premise. And let me give you one specific example. Um, I, I'm not going to mention the restaurant names, but there's a, there's a, a restaurateur who's been in, in New York, uh, been in the industry for, for many, many years. He's launching a new concept with a pretty reputable chef. Um, it's a fast casual concept. And I did a conversation with him about Sesame and their launch. And they originally were planning to open the restaurant with all of the major platforms. So Grub, Uber, DoorDash, and then their own channel. And after the conversation that I had with him, not, 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 not only because of it, but imparted um, onto their decision a little bit, was you know, their final decision to launch just on Sesame and their own channel and kind of hold off on the other platforms and I had this conversation, I heard this from him about a week ago. And, you know, I think it represents this kind of new mind, po- this new post-COVID mindset, which is there's great, you know, highly talented restaurateurs, you know, uh, chefs and people that are, are, you know, dipping their toe back into the, the industry, creating new concepts. And they're learning all the lessons from COVID and off-premise and how important it is to have a digital footprint, but doing so in a way that maybe prioritizes their own sustainability instead of the old playbook 
an assumption that I just got to be on all the platforms. So I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, I think it's interesting because themes always emerge when we have these shows. And one theme I think that has been emerging emerging recently is like people are realizing that they shouldn't just keep doing more with shrinking margins. It's like people are realizing like protect the margin, protect the margin in the hospitality industry, which I think is sort of like a first. Even if that means even less, that less business, revenue, right? right. So less revenue but better doesn't margin. necessarily mean less profit margin or, or less happiness. I think, you know, I think yeah. a lot of people have realized post-pandemic is that you can, can sacrifice have, some of that, be happier, yeah. have happier employees and still make more, still just make as much, more. Yeah. you know, money. Yeah, no, and I think that's spot on. And I think it's a bit of a, you know, going back to old school approach, right? You know, the restaurant industry, you could make good money in in the restaurant industry. Andrew Schnipper, uh, Schnipper has a great brand called Schnippers. Um, he's a friend. And he's been in New York for decades, you know, and he, we were talking just a couple of weeks ago and he was like, Josh, you could open up a great concept in Manhattan and make, you know, a lot of money, you know, and that, that was a long time ago. And then unfortunately over the last, you know, decade or a little bit more, you know, the mindset went from how do we create a, a business entity that has true profitability and sustainability towards a mindset of. How do we just grow market share and how do we open up as many new locations as possible? Forget about profit. And I think restaurateurs are doing exactly what you just said, Alex, who just, they're basically saying, no, 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 we now need to prioritize our bottom line and sustainability and, and utilize the tools that give us the most profit. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This has been a great conversation. I think we should move into a little bit of lightning round. Yeah. What, um, so our quick, short, rapid fire answers. We usually have like restaurant focus, but we yeah. had to, we had to change them for this one, which I'm excited about. So these are new. Oh, um, you didn't give me you, you didn't um, give me the heads up on the lightning round. Oh, it's okay. It's like quick. You don't remember this from last time? It's it's, uh, it's quick one or two word answers. Um, these are no, soft. All good. I'm teasing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, your favorite place to get delivery from right now outside of your RFI team? Um, I've been ordering uh, Blue Ribbon sushi a lot lately. Ooh, and that's on Sesame. Not on Sesame yet, unfortunately. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on, Josh. <laughs> Not on Sesame Oh, my God. When I, when I order on Sesame, I mean, I literally, you know, we do a lot of ordering internally, you know, just for testing and just because, you know, we, <laughs> we order food all the time. I literally do the rotation. Ivan Ramen is one of the, one of the spots oh, on Sesame I that we Ivan. added recently yeah. um, that I've been ordering a ton. Good. So. Okay. What about average order time? How long does it typically take for a customer's order to arrive versus what's the customer's expectation? Like versus customer expectation. Yeah. No, between 20 and 25 minutes. That's fast. That's and fast, that's, an, yeah, yeah, that's pretty fast. And relay, 
you know, has a long history, like I said, not only at our brands, but um, at many, many brands that have been using them and executing on those times. I mean, the thing I think, like, I don't know that we talked about Relay's model, but I think what's interesting is that they keep couriers within a specific zone Um, so that they don't have them going all over. You know, it's like with Uber Eats, if you get an Uber driver, they could be going from like the Upper East Side down to the Lower East Side is like makes no sense. So whereas like the way that Relay does it is that they keep people in zones, which makes it faster and is less, you know. Exactly. One of the things we prioritize is really setting optimal delivery radii. And yeah. typically it's about 1.7 miles in Manhattan to execute, um, you know, those types of delivery times. Um, and restaurants, you know, look, restaurants want to sell a lot of food to a lot of people. And sometimes there's a, you know, a tendency to want to expand those, you know, that, that radius to three miles, four miles. And that's just very, very difficult, not only for, for the consumer, but for the delivery driver himself uh, or herself. So, you know, so we are really putting a, a high priority on on using optimal uh, distances to make sure that it's just a you know, efficient system. I also think it's I think it's detrimental to the community and as a whole. I mean, it's it's it goes against shopping local, right? Because it's you've replaced your your need to to shop and eat within your community, and now you have the option to go get it from ten miles away. You're cannibalizing your own your own local restaurant. So I think it's good to keep the zones. Tight, you know, um, totally. We've asked you this before, but it, it may have changed in in per- pertinence to the new digital business. But what is your best business resource to offer, whether it's a, a book or a website or a person or whatnot? Um, that's another great question. So, one book specifically that we're really jumping into is Measure What Matters. It's, it's all about uh, establishing OKRs, which stand for Objectives and Key Results, made famous by people like Andy Grove and, and the, the gentleman who wrote this, this specific book called uh, John Dewar. And it just a, it's a very you know, tactical way to establish big goals, but that, uh, that are goals that are completely measurable and allow us to kind of stay you know, super focused on the things that we need to do to achieve success. So I would recommend that to to anybody, no matter what business you're in. But that's something we're using. And 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 to your overall point, you know, the one of the things that I think makes us unique, um, and this goes to our value proposition of being restaurant towards ourselves, is like when we talk to restaurants, which you would think would be a sales call, they're really not sales calls. You know, like we we talk to restaurants because we are restaurant tours, and we're talking about the industry and business and how things are going and and what naturally occurs, which I love is the sharing of information. You know, we learn a lot from other brands um, of things that we can implement in our, you know, portfolios. And sometimes we can also give advice to, you know, younger restaurateurs on how to create a tech stack or, you know, what's the best method for, you know, developing packaging that keeps your, you know, products um, at high quality across, uh, you know, delivery distances. So, so it's, it really feels like, you know, it's like this, we're friends, you know, we're colleagues, cohorts, you know, and, and not like salespeople. And I love that dynamic of, of how we're approaching Sesame. Partners. It's all about being a partner. Um, well, we love that. We always like to shout out opening soon. So if you have any recent openings that you've been to or anybody you want to shout out besides Sesame having opened soon? Um, yeah. Oh my God. There's, a, there's so much activity uh, going 
going on in, in New York right now. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely keep you posted. What, what's one of the bandits? We're working on a, a good friend, Adam Fulton, uh, part of Dan Hospitality. They just opened a bandit. It's actually been a couple months, but, but it's still relatively new. And we're, we're getting them onboarded onto Sesame, which we're excited about. And um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a soon to come uh, new concept. Um, I hope Evan doesn't get mad that I'm that I'm mentioning it, but it's called <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be called Old City, and it's the guy who founded Shorties. Do you guys know Shorties, the cheesecake oh, yeah. concept? Yeah. You know that's been around forever. Like really, really great product. Um, he is relaunching a brand called Old City, and we're excited about uh, them coming either at the end of the year or or early next. And yeah, and and then that concept I told you about up in up in Harlem is. I'm really excited about, about this brand. Amazing. Love it. Um, shout outs on our end. Well, I want to shout out Alex. He ran the marathon. It's on opening soon, but the marathon day oh, was, no um, yeah, Alex ran the marathon Congrats. this past Sunday, but I also want to shout out all the chefs and restaurateurs who ran and it was just such an inspiring day. So congratulations. Um, and it really, like when you said NYC is back, I'm like marathon day this year felt like NYC was back. It felt so good. Um, so that was awesome. And then also hungry house, which is the anti-ghost kitchen. They're partnering with people like Woldy Reyes from Woldy Cucina and Martha Hoover's, um, smash burgers to have like, they have a, a little kiosk and, um, in the Navy Yard, and we'll be also doing delivery. So that's launching um, on Wednesday, which is really exciting. Oh, very cool. Yeah, you should talk to them. I'll connect you to Kristen, the founder. She's awesome. Um, they. I actually know Kristen, I think. Yep, you better. She used to be at Zool, right? She was at Dig In. Oh, uh, yeah, I think, yes, I know exactly who it is. I would love to talk to her. I'll connect you. You should talk to her. We'll we'll make it happen offline, (laughs) post-pod. but awesome. We always love your, we always love having you on the show, just talking to you and thank you for being such like a thought leader. Yeah. Tell us Josh, how we find, um, Sesame. Uh, sesameorder.com. And it's a web app. So no need to download an app or do anything like that. Again, we are a bit restricted in our, um, in our ge- uh, geography. We're now serving, um, 34th street down to Houston street, but sesameorder.com. And, you know, you can find us on Instagram at Sesame order. We'd love to get some more follows so we can start to educate everybody out there about, you know, the truths of, of the industry and, you know, make sure everyone knows that there's a much better way to, to participate in a system that gives back to the industry and also can, can have a real impact on our community. I agree. And I'm confident that as, people learn about it that you'll have lots of people knocking on your door asking for to get in on it and, and have it grow so congrats um if you want to find us we're at till at nyc and at we are opening soon thanks again josh thank you thank you all so much and congrats on the marathon alex <laughs> <laughs> opening soon is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You could also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.